You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Owen Kinsella from the Irish Association of Professional Historians. His paper was entitled Irish Catholic Lobbying in London in the 1690s. Okay, so uh, it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon and what I'll be talking about is, is Irish Catholic lobbying in London in the 1690s. Now the term lobbying, it's a bit of an anachronism. They technically were managing or soliciting the business of their clients in London, but I've just used lobbying for ease of reference and the term that I prefer common is agents. They're usually agents, certainly the ones that don't appear in the, in the House of Lords. Now early in December 1691, Dennis Daly, a lawyer and native of Galway, embarked for London from Dublin. He carried with him a letter of introduction from Sir Charles Porter, one of the Irish Lords Justices and a signatory of the Articles of Limerick. Addressed to the Earl of Nottingham, William III Secretary of State with responsibility for Ireland, the letter described Daly as always inclinable to the English interest and to dispose the Irish to submit to their Majesty's obedience. And it went on to explain that Daly was in London to petition for a pardon from William and to pray a confirmation of the Articles of Galway. Now, the Articles of Galway are one of several terms of surrender negotiated during the William White War of 1689-91, and you can see the full list there on the slide. Limerick is, of course, the, the most well-known. Now, the promises made within the Articles of Surrender provided a basis for many Catholics, and particularly landowners, to remain in Ireland after the surrender of Limerick, rather than join the flight of the wild geese to the continent. Now, they became known as the Article Men. The challenge they faced from October 1691 was to persuade the Irish and English governments to honour the terms of these surrenders. Doing so required constant engagement with both governments and the maintenance of agents in Dublin and in London. And I'll be focusing on their efforts in London, identifying the agents where possible, as well as the groups who funded and instructed them from Ireland. The English government and royal court in London were vital arenas for Catholic lobbying. Any ambiguity regarding the interpretation and implementation of the Articles of Surrender would be decided by William's instructions to his Irish government. Moreover, because of Poyning's Law, which of course required every piece of Irish legislation to first be scrutinised at the English Privy Council, London provided a second forum where Irish legislation could be altered to an individual's or a group's advantage. And this was especially true and important for Catholics, who couldn't expect much favour from the Irish government throughout most of the 1690s. Dennis Daly was one of the first of a new wave of Irish Catholic agents and lobbyists operating in London in the decade after Limerick. They constituted a small yet vocal group sharing a common goal, though they don't seem to have cooperated to any great degree. Now, one month to the day after the signing of the Articles of Limerick on 3rd of October 1691, the Article Men of Waterford lodged a petition with the English Privy Council asking the King to prevent the loss of their estates. Now, their efforts were probably not on the same scale as those of the Article Men of Limerick, who from December 1691 employed several representatives in London. Similarly, the Article Men of Galway sent Dennis Daly, among others, to London at various times during the 1690s. And the evidence that survived suggests the formation of ad hoc committees of Article Men, of Limerick and Galway especially, to instruct these agents. 
and their efforts indicate just how rapidly Catholic energies and organisation were transferred from the military to the political arena in the aftermath of defeat. Now, two weeks before Daly left for Dublin, or left for London, William Talbot, the Earl of Tyrconnell, wrote from London to Adam Copley to inform him that the gentry of Ireland have fixed upon you as one of their agents to represent their grievances to their majesties. A month later, a second summons was sent, again from London, but on this occasion signed by John Galway and Edmund Malone, who uh, Common has already mentioned. And Copley was notified that he, Colonel Henry Luttrell and Sir Toby Butler were empowered to act for them as well as such as are under the benefit of articles and all those under protections. And Copley responded to this second call. The question of payment for these agents arose in November 1692 during correspondence with the Committee of Articlemen. And several of the committee, committee's members signed a letter sent to Copley that month, and the names are on the slide, which I'll, I'll come back to now in just, uh, just a moment. Copley was almost certainly one of the Irish agents then petitioning for permission to view two bills at that time before the English Privy Council, which Catholic agents in Dublin had been refused permission to view. In London, the Article Men's agents were granted their wish, and they were allowed to view the bills and to submit their observations. And this was quite a significant victory for the Article Men, as it provided them with a precedent to draw upon when they appeared before the English Privy Council, seeking to view Irish legislation in the years that followed. Now, each of the members of this committee were important Article Men, and most had held prominent positions in James II's civil administration or army. Colonel Nicholas Purcell and Sir Toby Butler had been among the Jacobite negotiators at Limerick, and Butler had served as James II's Solicitor General. Sir Stephen Rice had been appointed Chief Baron of the Exchequer in the Jacobite administration. Colonel Walter Butler was a cousin of the Duke of Ormond, while Sir James Cotter had been com- appointed Commander of the Jacobite Forces in Westminster in 1691. Henry Oxburgh sat in the 1689 Parliament and later participated in the Jacobite Rising of 1715, and he was hanged, drawn and quartered for that particular escapade. With the exception of Sir Stephen and John Rice, all had sat in the 1689 Irish Parliament as MPs. Now, as for the agents mentioned in the letter, Luttrell represented County Carlow in James's Parliament, and after the surrender of Limerick, was said to have persuaded several thousand Jacobite soldiers not to travel to, Sar- tra- to France with Sarsfield. His reward was a commission from William to raise a troop of 1,500 men for employment in the Venetian army, and he was granted a pension of £500 on the English establishment and travelled to Holland to attend William III on several occasions in the 1690s. And I have no direct evidence of it, but I think it's safe to assume that while there he would have lobbied the king on the Article Men's behalf. And Edmund Malone sat in the 1689 Parliament for the borough of Athlone, and I'll be returning to him throughout the paper as we go along. Now, Adam Coakley had been appointed himself, had been appointed to the Jacobite Treasury Commissioners in uh, 1689, he was well connected to several prominent English officials, including Sidney Godolphin, the Lord Treasurer, who was his brother-in-law. Coakley was, at least during 1692, I think one of the most important agents lobbying for the Article Men in London, and not just for Limerick. You have on the slide there a copy of arguments put forward by Coakley to the English Privy Council in 1692, disputing the Irish Privy Council's interpretation of various different aspects of the Articles of Galway and Limerick. The judgments referred to in the document's title had been delivered in Dublin in late 1691, with Coakley evidently employed to have them overturned in London, and he did have a, a degree of success. And incidentally, uh, I'm assuming Miss Coakley is presumably a phonetic rem- rendering of the name Coakley. And there's just one minor point you made about the, the Committee of Limerick Article Men. It wasn't a formalised body with a static membership, and at various times during the 1690s, different men stepped forward to coordinate the Article Men's lobbying. That's to be expected, as at least 1,200 men claimed the benefit of the Articles of Limerick during the 1690s. 
The Earl of Antrim, Viscount Fitzwilliam and John Seagrave assumed leadership roles in 1695 and 1697, while others, particularly Edmund Malone, Colonel Nicholas Purcell and Sir Toby Butler, acted as agents of the Article of Men more or less constantly in the decade after the surrender of Limerick and indeed beyond. So we're just going to turn to the Article of Men of Galway now, uh, who were also very active in London throughout the 1690s. And Dennis Daly was, as far as I can tell, their most important agent. He was an ideal candidate. During the 1670s and 1680s, he had established an excellent reputation as a lawyer in Ireland, having initially trained with the famous Confederate lawyer Patrick Darcy. During James II's reign, he served as judge in the Court of Common Pleas, where he won the approval of Irish Protestants for his impartial judgments. Now, you can see in the slide there some, kind of, some of the evidence of the kinds of money that would have been subscribed by the Article Men to fund their agents in Dublin and in London. The Clenrickard was, of course, not the only contributor to Daly's work or to the funds for the Article Men, but that kind of hard evidence of financial transactions is very difficult to find. Um, but as you can see from this 1697 letter, Catholic fundraising efforts were ongoing throughout the decade and were very closely monitored by the Irish government. And there's evidence to suggest that these men uh, on this slide were contributors to financing uh, agents in, in Dublin and in London. Again, they formed an ad hoc committee, similar to the one I've already mentioned, for Limerick, which issued instructions to Daly in mid-1692 when he was still in London acting on their behalf. And these men appear in several other instances relating to the Articles of Galway throughout the decade. And just to give you an example of the kinds of issues on which the Article men lobbied, in December 1691, the English Parliament passed an act imposing new oaths in Ireland. As well as preventing Catholics from sitting in Parliament or holding any civil or military office, the act was also intended to exclude Catholics from practising the law. The Articles of Limerick and of Galway were very clear in promising that any lawyer who was eligible to either set of articles was to be allowed to continue with their profession. The 1691 Oaths Act included a saving clause for the Limerick Article men, but omitted their Galway counterparts. And over the next five years, they made several attempts to reverse this setback. Their first effort originated in Dublin in the form of a bill prepared by the Irish Privy Council and intended to readmit the lawyers, the Galway lawyers, to the practice of the law. Now, that bill was rejected at the English Privy Council, where the, the Article men were again represented by Dennis Daly. And the bill was rejected not because of any animosity towards the Articles of Galway, but the Earl of Nottingham wrote from London that the bill was, and I quote, a contradiction to the Act made here, i.e. the 1691 Act, and would overrule it, which would have been of ill consequence, and therefore this must be endeavoured to be remedied here, for it is very just to be done. So what was required then was an Act of the English Parliament. But it wasn't until late 1695 that the Article men lobbied for such an Act. Dennis Daly and Edmund Malone petitioned the English Privy Council on 24th November 1695, requesting freedom for the Galway Article men to practise the law. Now, the following January, Daly, Malone and several unnamed others presented the same petition to the English House of Commons. But a counter-petition was subsequently presented by Robert Johnson on behalf of himself and the Protestants of Ireland to block the Galway Article Men's efforts. Johnson alleged that the true intent of the Daly-Malone petition was, and I quote, to introduce great numbers of Irish papists into the free practice of the law in Ireland and to repeal a statute made to prevent the dangers that might arise from such encouragement. On 10th of February, the Commons reported that prior to Johnson's petition, they had agreed to draft a bill in favour of the Article Men. Johnson's arguments caused him to reconsider, and the bill was subsequently dropped. There doesn't appear to have been any further effort to restore the Galway Article Men to their legal practices, and lawyers from Connacht, who had been very prominent in the Irish Court of Chancery prior to 1689, do not appear again in the court after 1691. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, the Article Men of Galway and Limerick don't appear to have worked together in a concentrated fashion because the promises uh, contained in those surrenders were quite separate. 
Those who claimed the benefit of the other articles, Drogheda, Waterford, Sligo and Inishbofin, were a much smaller group and occasionally pooled their resources. And I've just put up an example of one instance from 1700 when the act of resumption was under consideration by the English Parliament. Here we can identify Gregory Nolan as one of, or more likely the only agent for the article men of Boffin, cooperating with, with agents for Waterford, Sligo and Drogheda. And the handbill that you can see on the right is of the same type as the Daily Malone petition that I've just showed you and a little bit similar to Coleman's printed legal cases. These handbills were printed specifically for distribution to MPs and peers, bringing the petition's arguments to them in an easily digestible format, generally only a page, rarely stretching to beyond more than a page. Now, so far I've concentrated on what we might call the general Catholic interest as protected or promoted by the Articles of Surrender. And I'd just like now to turn briefly to the work of Edmund Malone, in London on behalf of individuals, both Catholics and Protestants. Malone was a Westmead native and, as we've already seen, an important agent for the Limerick Articlemen and a Galway Articleman himself. He was connected, well connected to the gentry of Connacht, Catholic and Protestant, and throughout the 1690s he not only represented the Articlemen in London, but also the private interests of Catholic and Protestant landowning families. One of the most well-documented connections was to his uncle, Colonel John Brown of Westport, a Catholic and owner of one of the largest estates in Ireland. Now, Brown was heavily indebted, and after the war sought an act of the Irish Parliament to help pay his debts. When that attempt failed following the prorogation of the Irish Parliament in November 1692, Brown contemplated seeking an act in the English Parliament. Malone was entrusted with managing his business in London. And Sir Charles Porter again wrote to London in support of the initiative, and you can see an extract from his letter here on the slide. And just there, I think there are a couple of points made uh, in relation to this particular act or this particular bill. I think the first of the apparent ease with which an Irish Catholic agent could move through the upper echelons of the English administration, even as the threat of another Jacobite invasion from France was very real. Uh, And the second is Porter's warning, which I've highlighted in bold, that obstructive tactics from other Irish Catholics were to be expected at the English Privy Council. Now, I won't go into the finer details, but essentially the payment of Brown's debts would have involved the imposition of a special tax on all Catholic-owned estates in Ireland. So what we have here is a very neat illustration of two separate Catholic interests lobbying against each other in London in late 1692, and that was something that was continued in 1695 and 1699 when Brown's business came before the English, or the English Privy Council again. Now Malone continued to act for his uncle throughout the 1690s and was present in London between 1697 and 1698 to oversee another private bill relating to John Brown's debts. And while there, he represented two other Catholic families, the Browns of the Neal and the Blakes of Moyne, both in County Mayo. And he also acted as an agent for the Protestant Vessies, including John Vessie, Church of Ireland, Archbishop of Tuam. Now, his work for the Browns and Blakes revolved around securing personal pardons for various family members for treason or alleged treason committed during the Williamite War. Although not strictly necessary for anyone who had successfully claimed the benefit of the Articles of Surrender, these pardons were an added layer of protection for landowning Catholics to secure against the potential loss of their estates. They're relatively common throughout the 1690s, but what Malone's correspondence allows us is an insight into their actual cost. Pardons for John and Martin Blake cost 100 guineas plus fees, while a pardon for George Brown of the Neal costs a similar sum. And that's just the fees for the actual issuing of the warrants. It doesn't take into account fees for agents and fees for clerks and fees for the law officers. Now, due to a delay in receiving a bill of exchange from Ireland, which would have allowed him to draw down the money, Malone took a loan from Richard Fitzgerald, a member of the important Waterford Catholic merchant family who were well established in London and showing the importance of that Irish community, I think, in London in the early 1690s. And that's something that continues on, as, as Coleman pointed out. 
Now, the first quotation on this slide, I think, also gives a small insight into the general fear that Irish Catholics had of having some of their business in London discovered by some of the more strongly anti-Catholic elements of the Irish Protestant polity. However discreetly they operated, it was inevitable that news of their endeavours would filter back to Dublin. And when lobbying was taken on behalf of the Catholic interests in general, counter-petitioning from Irish Protestants was highly likely, as we've already seen with the Daily Malone petition to the English Parliament in 1696. Successful Catholic efforts were generally more likely where a single individual or a family were concerned, as in this kind of instance. This next slide also gives an insight into the methods uh, used by Malone to ensure successful outcomes. He may well, a lot of his correspondence talks about the great efforts that he goes to, to go around town, to see all the people necessary to see, and to make sure that the business is continually brought to the law officers and the relevant people's um, attention. He may well obviously have been exaggerating somewhat, but I think it does give a a good flavour of just the kind of work and the kind of um, methods that were used. And in this instance, Malone was representing the Protestant Vessies of Chewham, who were attempting to ensure that formerly Catholic-owned lands brought into the family by the marriage of the Archbishop of Chewham's son to Charlotte Sarsfield were not susceptible to forfeiture. And just to say, Coleman, uh, just to add again, pick up on your point, I think religion was certainly no barrier to, uh, to, to the employment and to giving of briefs. It was more about ability and, it seems to me anyway, about their, uh, their skills. And it perhaps goes without saying, but I think overall Malone's correspondence highlights just how costly appeals from Ireland to the English Privy Council and the English Parliament could be. Agents had to be paid for their time and the travel and subsistence expenses covered. Clerks demanded fees to submit and copy petitions and orders, while Privy Councillors and the English law officers required substantial payments not just to consider petitions, but also to return favourable opinions. And though he maintained his principal residence in Ireland, Malone was active in London well into the 18th century, and I think John is going to touch on some of his other work in the next paper. As a Galway article man, Malone was ineligible to, to appear in the, in the law courts in Ireland, so it's perhaps not surprising that he carved out a position for himself as a chamber counsel and one of the foremost agents acting in London for Irish petitioners. Inevitably, this produced a strain on his marriage. His cousin Peter Brown wrote in 1707 that Ned Malone's wife showed me a letter from a husband from Liverpool. He was then on the road for London. His departure was very sudden and unexpected. The wife is very much displeased. Just to, to conclude, um, what I tried to offer is just some snapshots of Catholic activity in London. In the pursuit of their goal, the article men proved to be very adept at the art of political lobbying. Agents for each of the agreement were employed in Dublin and London to ensure both favourable interpretations and the implementation of the articles. Nor did their efforts end at the turn of the century. The passage of the Act of Resumption by the English Parliament in 1700 forced the article men once more to employ lobbyists and agents in London, while the growing corpus of penal legislation passed by the Irish Parliament from 1695 onwards ensured that Catholic agents petitioned the English Privy Council throughout the 18th century, seeking to have the penal laws either modified or rejected. Lobbying in London was, of course, not only a Catholic phenomenon, and nor was Catholic lobbying restricted just to the Articles of Surrender. It's a very wide circle uh, of, of endeavour, very much in terms of merchants and private business. I focus on the Article Men because I would suggest that their activities are a strong counter to the long-standing consensus among Irish historians that Catholic Ireland was rendered leaderless after the surrender of Limerick, or shipwrecked, to use Dovio Bruder's uh, well-known analogy. I think that in attempting to ensure the implementation of the Article of Surrender provided Catholics who remained in Ireland with a powerful focal point on which they concentrated their energy and, and resources. Some of the most prominent members of the Jacobite administration chose to remain in Ireland after Limerick and became leaders of the Article of Men's efforts. 
And these efforts provided the Catholic elite in Ireland with a focus that, for many, outweighed thoughts of continued adherence to Jacobitism. With the glaring exception of the promised freedom to practice their religion, by the end of the 1690s, most of the Articles of Surrender had been implemented. This provided initial grounds for optimism that Irish Catholics could continue to prosper in the 18th century, as they had done during the reign of Charles II. However, the Pope reacts of 1704 and 1709 almost completely swept away the benefits of the Articles of Surrender, particularly in the area of, in respect of property rights. They also conferred on the Article Men a unique status in Irish society. The penal laws made conformity to the Church of Ireland a pressing concern for Catholics. And while some Article Men confirmed, and Edmund Malone was one, it was their children that did so in large numbers to secure the lands that their fathers had, secu- had protected during the 1690s or to pursue political and legal careers. The Article Men stood alone as possessors of immunities from several legal restrictions on Catholics, immunities that could not be bestowed upon their heirs and would expire with their generation. As late as 1748, the obituary of Thady Dunn described him as a most upright and eminent agent and solicitor in Chancery, a sincere friend and endowed with every virtue. He retained his memory and senses to the last. He was one of the persons included in the Articles of Limerick, which benefit he enjoyed during his life. By 1748, however, those benefits were somewhat meagre. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.